0: Alien Week concludes today with this double feature. First off, we have the story of a young woman who gets lost in the catacombs underneath a major city. And what happened to her in that subterranean maze changed her life forever. And then we take a look at the bizarre story of two Los Angeles filmmakers who were approached by the U.S. government with an interesting proposition. We want you to make a documentary about aliens. We will give you full access to all of our archives and you can interview anyone you want. And we have actual footage that was recorded at a US military base of a UFO landing and us meeting the aliens for the first time. It's all yours. There's just one catch. We'll take a look at that story today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. hope you guys are having a great day too. You guys ready to wrap up Alien Week? Alien Encounters Week is what I'm retroactively naming. it. Alien Encounters. I can't think of a tagline. But anyway, so Alien Encounters Week comes to a close with two incredibly interesting stories. And we're going to start off with the first one is coming out of the Soviet Union. Now, like I've said before, we're getting a whole rash of alien-related stuff coming out of former Soviet Union states. And the problem, as fascinating as a lot of these stories are, it's very hard to verify them because they're very old. And they weren't, a lot of them use fake names, and they weren't super open about talking about it underneath the Soviet Union. Soviet Union, when you went to, like, when you basically wore a bent nail, when you were different... It was likely to get the KGB involved, which is a group you did not want sniffing around your business. So when you saw UFOs, you saw aliens, a lot of times you kept it to yourself. You may have told people in local villages and things like that. But you're not going to go on television and talk about it. So these stories now are leaking out. In the city of Odessa, in the country of Ukraine, which back then it was just the Soviet Union. But in the city of Odessa, it actually has the world's largest Urban catacomb system. 1,500 miles of catacombs. And it's The Paris Catacombs, which is the more famous one because it has all the skeletons down there, is one-fifth the size of the Odessa, it, it, Odessa Tunnels. It started off as a stone mining operation, and then smugglers came in and made it bigger and used it to smuggle stuff all over the city and out of the city and things like that. People go missing in those catacombs, of course. People go missing anywhere, and when you add darkness and undergroundness and winding tunnels, you're even upping the disappearing factor. They try their best to prevent it. They have tour groups that go through it, and they kind of know what they're doing. But every so often, someone may veer loose to the tour group and get lost. Sometimes people will go in without a tour group and get lost. Sometimes people would just go there to hide from authorities and they're never found and so on and so forth. It's a 1,500 miles of underground tunnels would be a very, very hard place to search for somebody who's missing. In Odessa in 1971, you have a hospital staff going about their business. Checking bedpans and uh, doing other <laughs> do hospital stuff. Taking temperatures, life-saving brain surgery. I don't know. Stuff that goes on in a hospital. And on this particular day, which we don't even have the day for this. On this particular day, a young woman is wheeled in to the ER. She goes by the name Marsha, and she's barely coherent. So the doctors realize she's dehydrated, she's weak, we gotta like stabilize her, and then we can figure out what's going on. And they start to piece stuff together. Marsha was not from the Ukraine, she was from Crimea. And she was visiting Odessa, and part of her visit, she wanted to go on this underground catacomb tour. And a couple days ago, she had. But during the tour, somewhere along the way, she went missing. And the tour guide didn't even know she was gone until the tour is over. And I'm sure they backtracked it, but imagine getting back out of the catacombs and being like, Hey, everyone, did you have a good have a good trip? Let's fill out these surveys and tell my boss how I did. Wait a second. I have ten survey cards here, but there's only nine people in front of me. So he calls the authorities. They look for her. They can't find her. But she wound up in the ER because several days later, she stumbled back out. Of, just as a new tour group was about to go in. They never stopped doing the tours. People go missing and they just keep doing tours. I mean, obviously, they move out of the way when the cops are searching. But that's just an added thrill to the new tour goers. As a new tour is starting to go in, she comes out of the cave. And they're like, hey, you're that girl that the police have been looking for. And she's like, Ugh, water, water. So they take her to the ER, and the ER staff is able to figure all that stuff out. They, of course, ask, what happened? Like, why'd you leave the tour group? Did you see a shiny rock? see a spooky ghost? And she goes, no, actually, what I saw was far more absurd than both of those put together, a shiny rock ghost. She said, I was walking through the cave, and I heard the sound of a baby crying. And I looked around at the other people in the tour group, and they didn't even react to it. We're underground in this labyrinth in the dark. And I hear a baby crying. And nobody else reacts to it. And it really freaked me out. But for some reason, I began to approach the sound of the baby. And I guess the reason would be is I don't want to think about a baby being lost in here. But I just felt myself drawn to the noise. I didn't tell anyone, hey, did you hear that baby? I just looked and saw they weren't reacting to the noise. And then kind of subconsciously left the group to approach the sound of the crying baby. A crying baby in 1,500 miles of tunnels underneath a city would have to be one of the most terrifying noises possible. I think the only terrifying noise worse than that would be the sound of someone you knew crying. Like if you heard the sound of a loved one going, help me in the darkness of a cave, that's the only thing that would be more terrifying than a generic baby crying deep under the earth. Like she said, it was a subconscious thing. She kind of steps away from the group to find the baby. And the next thing she knows, she is completely alone. The group just kept moving on. She's alone in these tunnels. And the next thing she feels, she describes as if someone kicked me in the back of the head. And then a few days later, I came to or I just walked out of the tunnel. Like she has this huge gap in her memory. Now, because we're analyzing this as a alien encounter... The lost time makes sense to us. But to her, and again, the Soviet Union, they didn't have a ton of info about aliens or alien abductions or UFO sightings or things like that. They didn't have all the popular entertainment. They didn't have all the books. They didn't have all the researchers. This wasn't public knowledge. So nowadays, if somebody blanks out for hours or days or whatever, we'll say you might have had brain damage or maybe you got abducted. 99% of the time, it's brain damage, but... That's a common, lost time is a common thing for aliens. A couple days is actually quite long. Normally it's a few hours, but a couple days later she walks out of the tunnel and she says, I don't have any memory outside of hearing the baby crying, feeling like I got kicked in the back of the head, and then walking out of the tunnel. So after all of her, like, she's stabilized and she's given a bunch of fluids, she's ready to go home. And she does go back to Crimea, go back to her home, and it doesn't take long for her to realize something. She's pregnant. She ends up giving birth to the boy, a little healthy baby boy, and he appeared totally normal. She never underwent hypnosis to see what happened, because again, those things weren't really available to them. She wasn't thinking, maybe I got abducted by aliens, or maybe I got experimented on. She just knew that she got kicked in the back of the head in the middle of the tunnels, woke up a couple of days later, walked out of the tunnels, and now she's pregnant. And you're working under the assumption that it may have been a man, it may have been like, of course it's a man, but it may have been a human who basically just took advantage of her, assaulted her in the cave, things like that. She does start to notice, though, that her son seems exceptionally bright. In the 1990s, very vague, very vague, but in the 1990s, when her son's in his 20s, he says, I want to go on a trip. I want to go to Odessa. I feel compelled to go into these catacombs underneath the city. He went to Odessa. He went into the catacombs on a tour group, just like his mother, and he was never seen again. So, that's a really interesting alien story. It, 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 it's interesting for a couple different reasons. One, it's so mundane that it could simply be a woman went into a cave, got assaulted, cut, got pregnant because of the result of it, and blocked that memory out, left the cave, told her son about the event, Because, of course, he's going to ask, where's my dad? And she's like, well, I don't know. I got kicked in the back of the head, underground, and then I had you. And that may have compelled him to go to the cave. Not necessarily to find his dad, but to find some answers about his life. So it could have just been a total human evil action that resulted in the birth of a boy who happened to be exceptionally bright and then went back to the caves to find some answers and got lost and was never found. On the flip side, you could have the alien hybrid theory where she goes into the cave and is abducted and her memory wiped and she's impregnated by an alien. And this is what we call an indigo child. An indigo child is a term that's tossed around in the UFO community, the new age community. There are these gifted children among us that are alien hybrids. They appear human. Every medical test shows they're human. There's nothing that shows that they're alien Except that they claim to be, or their parents claim that they are more thoughtful and more evolved and empaths and intelligent, highly intelligent and all this stuff. I've always thought Indigo children were either a total crock or just kids that happen to be exceptional. I don't think, it's a little convenient that your alien kid can't be detected with any possible test. Every possible test run shows that it's a human, but they seem to be a little bit smarter than their peers. I think then that's a huge leap of logic to go Ergo, he's half-alien, or a quarter-alien, or one-eighth-alien, or whatever you want to say. But that's kind of where this story is trying to lead. And it's the reason why I want to cover it, because technically, it was on UFOinsight.com. It's linked to UFO reports coming out of the Soviet Union, but there's not a single detail, other than missing time, that makes it seem to be alien. And it makes me wonder if this person went to a hypnotist or a UFOlogist with this story when it happened and told the story how many more details would come out, and or how many details would be fabricated to make it fit an alien narrative. And the way the story supposedly ends with her son getting lost in those tunnels as well, just gives the whole thing a grim mood. There may be forces beyond our control that prey on us, that prey on humans. When we're lost in the dark and at our most vulnerable, They control us. And even 20 years later, they still controlled her son. And whether it was the mystery of his birth or something more sinister, something urged him to go back into those tunnels to never be seen again. But let's go ahead and move on to our last story. Now, our last story I find absolutely fascinating. A true mystery. That one's a mystery, too, because we don't know what happened. But this one has a lot more verifiable facts to it. It happened around the same time. It happened in the 70s. But there's a lot more info to go off of. 1973, you had two filmmakers. You had Robert Emmenegger, Robert Emenegger. And his partner, Alan Sadler. Robert is a director of documentary films. Alan is a producer. And it's 1973. They're in L.A. It's a hot day i don't know if it's summer or winter or whatever but anyways it's always hot in la these two men are sitting in their office and they're actually approached by some military officials now it's not like the military officials just walked through the door and said hey guys what's up they called them. it was a series of meetings but the military officials end up visiting them and they say hey listen you're a documentary filmmaker you you guys work together alan robert you guys work together We want you to make a documentary for the U.S. military. And Robert's like, oh, you know, that's who's going to pass it up? One, you know you're going to get a huge budget because the government just likes throwing money at stuff. And two, it's really a -a once-in-a-lifetime deal to be given that type of access. So they go, yeah, sure, we'll do that. So Robert and Alan get invited out to this Air Force Base. They're invited out to Norton Air Force Base in California. The military guys go, listen, okay, so we want you to make a documentary on some advanced research projects we've been working on. They're like, oh yeah, it sounds pretty intriguing. They have like, what do you have, like a stealth blimp, Invisible jet-like Wonder Woman? And they're like, uh, (laughs) we can't talk about that stuff. But we want you to do documentaries on some other stuff we're working on. They're hiding the plans for the stealth blimp behind them. They say, okay, here's the different things you can work on. You can work on this project here, and they're like, oh, maybe... You can work do a documentary on this stuff we're doing on there. Yeah, maybe Robert and Alan are kind of discussing it. Military officials are like you can. what about this one? You can do this one? And they're like, huh? And they go, you know what? You you could also do that documentary about that time that UFO landed at that Air Force base and those three aliens got out and we met them. Or you could do a documentary about that. And they're like, whoa, 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 <laughs> wait, wait, what was that last one? Military officials go, yeah, we have footed These aliens came down and landed at an Air Force base a while back. What was it, a couple years ago? Other guys are like, yeah, it was a couple years ago. A UFO landed in our Air Force base and they got out and we talked to them for a bit. We have footage of it. We can put it in a documentary if you want. I think it would be really good. And Robert at this point basically has an eight foot long erection. Like here he has these high level military officials telling him not only have aliens landed on the planet. But they will be given the footage of this to put in their documentary. And the military is just like, ah, you know, you can do it. You can, what about this other stuff? So after Robert takes a long cold shower, he goes, let's, let's do the alien. I want to find out more about this alien thing. Let's find out about this alien thing. So here's what happened in 1971 at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Three disc-shaped crafts are kind of flying around. And one of them begins to descend and the other two fly away. The ship lands, door opens up, and these aliens come out. And they're human-sized, with gray skin, they have huge, this, this is an right, because these aren't typical gray, the, the description of these are very interesting. They're human-sized, they have gray skin, they have huge noses, no chin, they have cat eyes with little vertical slits, so like a little cat's eye marble, and a very thin slit mouth. And these aliens walk out of the ship. And they're wearing these headdresses. They're wearing these weird things on their head that is later determined to be a communication device. They're wearing the tight flight suits. They're wearing like the skin-tight unitards, which we've seen in so many alien encounters. They end up giving translators to the military officials who are out there to greet them. They're panicking. They're like, what is going on? These aliens come off the ship, give these guys these translators. And then they end up going into a nearby hangar. All of that was caught on film. The UFO landing, the aliens disembarking with their headsets, and everyone totally freaking out, and then handing the translator, and then them all walking into a hangar. It was all filmed, according to this story. And it's we'll very, very, because you're like, how? why haven't I seen that? This is a really interesting story. But Robert and Alan watched this footage. They saw the UFO land. They saw everything I just described to you. They're told... So they just seem going to the hangar. They're told by the military officials that for several days, the humans and the aliens talked to each other, they exchanging information. And the only thing, the only detail of the conversation that Robert and Alan were ever told was that the U.S. military, one of the questions they... It's weird that this is the only detail they heard about the several days of meetings, but the U.S. military had recently intercepted an alien transmission... And they asked these aliens, was that you? And they said, no, that wasn't us. That's the only detail out of all the conversations they had that Robert and Alan were privy to. They watch this footage and they're like, we can totally make a documentary about this. This is amazing. The military's like, good. We are going to give you unfettered access to all of our archives. You can go anywhere. You can talk to anybody. If they say, well, I can't talk about that. That's classified. You call us and we'll tell them they can talk to you. You can go anywhere. And and Robert and Allen did. They started going around and interviewing all of these people. At one point, they interviewed Colonel William Coleman. Colonel William Coleman was one of the head guys on Project Blue Book. And he said in later interviews, the amount of access these two civilians had was unprecedented. I had never once seen two civilians walk in and talk to people and be able to ask them questions and they have to answer them truthfully. He goes, I had never seen anything like it. They interviewed him. He told them everything he knew. They began going through archives at the Air Force Base, looking at all this UFO stuff. They went to NASA and said, hey, we're the guys working on that documentary. You got anything for us? Because we're making this documentary. NASA begins revealing, showing them clips of unidentified objects that they had sighted in space and in Earth orbit. So at this point, Robert's like, oh my God, this is Amazing. They're getting ready to get the documentary going. They're do, they've done all these interviews. They're ready to go. And the military shows up, and they're like, hey, how's the documentary coming? And he's like, oh, it's going great, man. It's going great. They're like, yeah, we noticed you still have that boner. He's like, yeah, I keep taking cold showers. But it's just not helping. I mean, like, I'm seeing stuff. I'm seeing stuff that civilians were never meant to see. Like, this is super exciting. I find this absolutely amazing. And the military goes, you know what? It's funny that you say that about civilians not... Being able to see this stuff. Because how, we're going to pitch something to you. Give us a couple minutes. We're going to pitch an idea to you. And at this point, Robert's like, oh, uh-oh. Military goes, listen. You can still make your documentary. And you can still use the interviews that you used. But we don't want you to tell anyone about the Norton Air Force Base alien ship landing. None of that. And Robert's like, that's kind of the key point. And the military goes. And this is what the military officials actually said. They said, okay, here's the thing. You can tell that story. But you can't say that it's already happened. You have to say that it may happen in the future. Or maybe it's happening right now. But you can't say this is a factual thing that actually happened. Robert goes, what happens if I do? Military basically just says don't. You can still make your documentary. All the interviews you filmed are fine. But you're not allowed to include that footage. And you can't say it. You can say... This may happen sometime in the future. Now, of course, Robert asks, why? Why the change all of a sudden? The government said, listen, because now we're in the year 1973, 1974, and the military goes, since Watergate, things have changed. That's really the only answer they give. And the website was like, well, that's lame. But the interesting thing about Nixon, he gets a lot of heat, and I get it. Watergate and the enemies list and stuff like that, those were really corrupt things. But every single moon mission, every single human landing on the moon, happened during Nixon's presidency. They were all Nixon. And then since Nixon left, we've never put another man on the moon. So Nixon put more humans on an orbiting body around planet than every other president combined. So if his administration was really looking into space and really pushing the bounds of human exploration... It could have been him pushing this story. He wanted to get it out there. And he leaves, and you don't have that powerful person now trying to push that narrative. Someone else comes in and says, I don't want the documentary made. I do, I, I've always found that fascinating that Nixon never gets the credit for, one, ending the Vietnam War, and then for two, putting all those men on the moon. But Robert says, I still got enough to make a documentary. And he ta- decides to take seven seconds Of the original footage and put it into his documentary. And he ended up showing it to the military. Because this was all backed by them. Which is bizarre to begin with. That the military had any reason to want to make a documentary about UFOs. He puts it in his footage. And shows it to the military. And they go, oh yeah, it's fine. And he goes, listen, they saw it in there. I didn't try hiding it from them. I didn't do a secret edit at the end. But it's in there. And no one said anything. And we're ready to go. Uh, so the documentary is out. You can watch it today on YouTube. It's called UFOs Past, Present, and Future. Which is how it ends with that story I just told you. And then after Close Encounter of the Third Kind came out, it was re-released but called UFOs. It Has Begun. And you can see in that... It, it's amazing documentary. It, it's the The one drawback to the documentary is a lot of the information is dated... So they were saying stuff like, did you know that Charlemagne made it illegal to believe in UFOs? And I was like, really? And I went and looked it up, and that has been disputed. And there's been other comment, historical comments that they're like, did you know this was this? And then I looked it up, what's true? But it's hosted by Rod Serling, which is always a plus. Because that guy is just a, a dope host, a dope narrator. He narrates the whole thing. And... It starts off talking about the history of alien life, and it talks about because I I've always heard about you know the alien starships over Germany in like the 1600s and stuff, but I never heard that theory about Charlemagne banning UFOs. So it goes over like the history of UFO sightings. It ends with this Rod Serling going, you know, in the future, an alien craft may land at a U.S. Air Force base. The creatures that get off are tall. Gray with cat-like eyes. They wear headdresses. Maybe it's some sort of translation unit. And he describes that encounter that Robert said he saw on video. And while that's going on, you get to see a little seven seconds of that little silvery disc flying over the desert. New Mexico desert? We don't know. It's flying over the desert. This is one of those stories that really has more questions than answers. Even though we can verify a bunch of details, the documentary did come out. Those were the people behind it. They did have access to all these government officials because they're in the documentary. You have answered, verifiable answers like that. But then the big question is, is the ending, where they're talking about it being a fictional thing that may happen in the future, is that something that they actually saw? Were those people visitors, or those aliens visitors to our planet? And what did Nixon have to do with all of it? Why was his removal from office? Why was the Watergate scandal? The reason why they were told, don't say that this happened already. Say that it may happen someday. It's just a huge web. It's a true conspiracy story. And that's why I'm shocked that this isn't more popular. I never heard of this story until last week. And it's been around for about 30 years at this point. The documentary came out in the 70s. Robert was doing an interview, I think, in the late 80s about it, mid-80s about it, and it's just disappeared. Is it one of those... It's, It's just fascinating to me. It's one of those conspiracy theories that should be up there with Project Blue Book, but it's not. And is there a reason for that? And is the reason that there is even a grain of truth to this? I find it fascinating that I can read article after article about reptilians kidnapping people from Idaho to turn into sex slaves underneath the ice caverns of Antarctica. I can find hours of YouTube videos on that. But I had never heard of this documentary. I would never heard of these filmmakers. I had never heard of this story until seven days ago. And there's so much meat on it. But every time you take a bite, it's like a mystery. Mystery meat. Because every time you take a bite, there's just more questions you have about it. Politics are completely intertwined with UFOlogy. You cannot separate the two. You can separate politics and the paranormal. The government doesn't have a group investigating ghosts and Dybbuk boxes and the Annabelle doll that we know of. They may... But as far as we know, they don't. But we do know it is very, very well known that the government has investigated unidentified flying objects in the past. So when you look at UFO lore and alien mythology, it is tightly connected to political realm. And there's always this hope that the next president or the next leader will have the courage to come out and say that aliens are real. But then you think maybe they're not, or maybe they are and they haven't visited us, or maybe this or maybe that, or maybe the president doesn't know, maybe that information's kept from him, and so on and so forth. But maybe it's even more complex than that. Maybe one day a president did want to expose this and had his legacy torn to pieces. You very rarely find fans of Nixon. You'll find fans of Reagan, you'll find fans of Obama. You'll find fans of Carter. But Nixon fans, very rare. Very, very rare. And to me, that is far more destructive than a bullet through the head. A leader gets assassinated, he goes down as a martyr for the cause. It's one of those things they always say, oh, JFK got assassinated because he wanted to reveal the truth about aliens. And I'm thinking, what is a worse punishment for going against the deep state or going against? the shadow government, getting assassinated and being immortalized, or being considered one of the worst presidents ever and having your legacy destroyed. What For a man who's so vain he wants to become president of the United States, what's a worse punishment? What's a worse punishment than that? The idea of being a nobody, of being vilified by every single institution in the country. The idea of having your legacy disintegrated before your eyes, that's a far greater threat. I think a lot of men would risk their lives to tell the truth. But not as many men would risk their reputations to do so. You die for the truth, you're a hero. The other option, the truth doesn't get out anyways. And people spit when they hear your name. And that may be what's truly keeping the American people, the world, from knowing the truth of what happened at a New Mexico Air Force base in 1971. Radio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash Radio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys.